0: who makes you uncomfortable, every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has
1: done for us, and then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Hey guys, welcome back to the Ansons Podcast. I'm Blaine.
0: And I'm Sam. And this week, we were joined by Annie Grace, who was pointed out to us by some of the folks on staff here for doing really awesome work in the realm of our relationship with alcohol. She has two products, two offerings out there in the form of This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment. And what follows is going to be a very good, potentially uncomfortable conversation for you.
1: I was fascinated. I explored her books a little bit, but what I'll say here at the beginning is joy is the motivator. And this conversation reminds me of conversations that I'll have with friends who aren't runners when they'll ask me about running and they'll go, oh, I would like to, but I just, it just hurts too bad in the hills. And I'll lean in and quietly whisper, I walk the hills because shame as a motivator doesn't make you run better. Joy makes you run better. And here we go exploring that with alcohol.
0: Yeah. So love the heart, love the posture here, bringing curiosity and courage to the table, kicking back shame. Let's dive into a conversation around alcohol with Annie Grace. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Annie, thank you so much for your time and for jumping on the podcast with us today. We're excited to talk about the alcohol experiment and our relationships and things. So thank you.
2: No, thanks for having me. It's great.
0: We are obviously in a unique moment in time and for a variety of reasons. Isolation, loss of work, loss of access to things. Um, I think we're all turning to comfort, maybe more so than ever. And I'd love for you to just take us in the middle of the action of, what are some of the ramifications? What's some of the tension? What are gonna be some of the things that people are gonna be feeling behind the curtain right now as we turn to our relationships with things like alcohol?
2: Right now, I think more than ever before, um, in my life at least, it's a global fear. So it's not somebody else's fear. It's not over there or in their backyard or, you know, I mean, I remember when we went to war and it it was intense, but it wasn't intense like this. And even 9-11 was intense, but not intense like on a global and what's next. It was kind of, okay, that's that's over, that's done. And I think what we do in fear is we've been told from, uh, I mean, everybody's, really, since we were born, that one of the ways to handle fear, one of the antidotes is with a drink. And you can just look at social media and you see it everywhere. It's okay. Well, I know you're stressed because you're staying at home with your kids and now you're also a teacher. So it's totally okay to have champagne before noon and on and on. And I think, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the antidote to that is actually not to beat ourselves up about it, which sounds weird. But I think what happens and what's certainly happened in my life and my experience is that when I realize I you always have like these two versions of yourself, right? You're you're watching your behavior, and there's this little part of you that's like, Come on, what are you doing? Really? I can't believe come on, really? And then there's this other part of you like, no, I just gotta do it. I, I don't even know how I'm gonna get through the day. So you just you just be quiet and go over there. But mm-hmm. it creates this really intense. Internal conflict or internal war. And if you think about conflict, conflict is painful if we just witness it out there. When it's happening inside our own hearts, inside our own minds, it's it's all the more painful. And so how do we balance this voice that's kind of judging our behavior in this voice? It's like, yeah, but my whole life's gonna fall apart. I just need to have a drink because what else can I do? How else can I cope? And I think that's really the crux of the tension.
1: That is kind of a relief to take. pressure off. I know that's a huge part of your unique approach. Uh, In your book, Naked Mind, you go, you can drink while reading this book. Let's get that conflict off the table so that we can push into some things. And let's start at the beginning because there's so much here that's going to be helpful for people. But when it comes to understanding alcohol, understanding the story that you're telling yourself about alcohol, where did that begin for you?
2: So, you know, when I really got aware of this inner conflict, of this intense drama that was tearing apart, not only my life in some ways, but also my, my faith in my own ability to make good decisions and my own ability to trust myself. I was in a train tunnel. I was in Heathrow airport in London, coming back from like a six day, super boozy work trip. I had, you know, I was global head of marketing. So I was traveling twice a month internationally. I was in charge of 28 countries and we had done what we'd always done which was drink all night basically as coworkers it was just part of the deal part of the job which seems crazy but that's really the reality for a lot of people and a lot of executives and i woke up in the morning feeling so awful and i went into the hotel restaurant and i was like hey can i get a mimosa with my breakfast and the the waitress she said Sorry, I'm not opening the champagne this early because nobody else is going to drink it. So unless you're planning to drink the whole bottle, it's going to go flat before everybody else is is in. And I'm like, oh no, of course not, never. I would no, uh, no, no. And so then she's like, but I could I could give you a, a um, screwdriver. And I was like, oh, what's that? I didn't really know what that was. And she's like, it's orange juice and vodka, and vodka in the morning was one of those lines in my head that I was like, okay, that's a no go. That's a no. That's a problem. I can't cross that line, right? And. um And so again, I had this external, like, oh, really, come really vodka at six in the morning. That's what you're going to do here. But then there was this other part of me that was like, oh, geez, you feel awful. All you have to do is get on the plane. Just get on the plane. You can make a better decision later. Just get on the plane, get home. And so I was like, yeah, sure. I'll have that. And I had two or three and I got out of the cab at Heathrow. I'm sitting in this train tunnel. And I just realized that what I had been trying wasn't working. Like the setting these limits on myself, beating myself up, like no drinks until Thursday. Okay, couldn't do that. No drinks until Friday. Okay, couldn't do that. Only drinking on the weekend, couldn't do that. You know, only two glasses of wine, couldn't do that. And it was funny because I could do it. It's just that whenever I did, I felt deprived. I felt miserable. I felt like I was missing out. You know, I felt like, oh, you know, just just not good, not emotionally happy about it. Mm. And so in this instance, I was at this crossroads of, I have to stop doing what I'm doing, you know? And I really, I I really honestly felt like God just said, like spoken to my heart and just was like, hey, like those weapons of shame and blame, those are not effective for change. Those weapons of you trying to beat yourself up into changing this, that's, that's not the way, that's not the path. That's never been my path. That's never going to be my path. That is not it. And so I felt this new question kind of bubble up inside me, which was like, what changed? Why was it in college I could you know, drink on occasion and then not drink um, forever. Like I could count times of my hands that I drank in college. My, my peer group didn't drink. I, you know, why was it in my early working days that when stressful situations come, came up, I was going for a run. I wasn't reaching for a bottle of wine. And so I was like, what changed? And I made a commitment to find out the answer to that. And I said, you know what, I'm going to drink. I'm going to let myself totally off the hook. Whatever I drink or don't drink, it's fine. I'm literally putting down those weapons of the shaming myself, the blaming myself, the guilting myself. I'm letting myself off the hook and I'm going to find the answer to what has changed. Why is it different now?
0: Mm. Okay, so good. Yes to the, the shame piece. Like, oh my gosh, not a good motivator for change. I want to get into making things off limits and what that does for us. But before we go down chasing any of those rabbit trails, Just take us on what what did you begin to learn about your relationship and our relationship as a culture with alcohol?
2: It was mind-blowingly eye-opening. And I think that's actually the feeling that a lot of people have when they start to read my books now is like, whoa whoa, really? <laughs> really? And so what happened was I actually started by making a list of all the reasons I drink. And I was like, okay, well, I drink to loosen up. I drink to have fun. I drink to socialize with my friends. I drink to connect with my husband. I drink um, to relieve stress at work. And I made all these reasons. And I actually just started asking my friends like for all the reasons they drink. And then I went on this, and, and I'm a science-minded person. And I went on this um, Deep dive into the beautiful thing about this day and age is all the medical journals that used to only be available if you were like in your graduate PhD, you can just buy those studies online. And I went and I started researching like, does alcohol really do that thing? Like if I'm drinking to relieve stress, does it relieve my stress? And lo and behold, I found out that actually in you know, among many studies, one of the studies that came out was actually in response to a drink, your body will release cortisol because a drink is a depressant and your body needs a stimulant to balance it out. So cortisol is the stress hormone. It'll also release adrenaline. So biochemically, it's making you more stressed, not less stressed, you know, and I drank a hot toddy to feel better when i was sick. Well, lo and behold, alcohol is one of the most destructive things you can do for your immune system. And like it affects all five functions of your immune system. And so one by one, every single reason that I drank wasn't standing up. It was like what it said it did on the label and what it was really doing in my body. Now, the reason we're duped into this and the reason we believe it is tons of societal pressure. Everybody's telling us this thing. And hey, how can the majority be wrong? We all think if everybody's doing it, it must be correct. And the other thing is that alcohol does do two things. That do convince us that it is giving us pleasure and relieving pain. And those two things are it numbs us. So it actually makes your brain synapses like fire uh, less quickly. So your thoughts slow down. Now, if you're having all these stress out thoughts all day long and you pour a drink and all of a sudden your thoughts slow down, that feels like, oh, relief. And yes, you can drink oh. enough to actually pass out. So you can drink enough to make yourself unconscious. And, you know, it depending how much pain you're in, that could feel like relief. They used to use alcohol actually as an anesthetic for surgeries before they found out how toxic it was to the body. And they stopped doing that and they found out- back, back when they, they
0: gave you a leather strip when they were like cowboy <laughs> days, you know, you bite down something.
2: Yes, exactly. And so it was really like, okay, well, it's, it's not doing that. And even that relief that you feel, I timed it. And then I, I looked into the science and it literally lasts 20 minutes. You know, you feel this 20 minutes of your blood alcohol is rising. You start to feel a little bit of a euphoria. You start to feel good. You start to feel a little bit disconnected from your problems. And then your body says, wait a second, this isn't good for us. And it starts to purge and get rid of your blood, the alcohol in your blood, your blood alcohol starts falling and your blood alcohol falling is all sorts of nasty emotions. It's like unease and discomfort and feeling anxious and feeling just not quite on balance and feeling tired and feeling irritable and angry. Now, the problem is that 20 minutes of blood alcohol rising in the body is exchanged for two to three hours of blood alcohol falling. However, because it doesn't feel good for our blood alcohol to fall, what do we do? We reach for the next beer. And I at least was doing that until I was falling asleep at night. And so (laughs) I wasn't knowing that, but then I was waking up the next morning much more anxious and wondering why and just assuming, you know, just my age. I just don't have any energy. I'm just too stressed out. It must be my kids. It must be my husband. It must be my job, all these external things. Instead of saying, wait a second, it's this thing. And so when I had put down those weapons of blame and shame, when I made it not a loaded conversation, when I stopped making myself wrong and just got really curious, all the reasons I drank boom, 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 didn't do it, didn't do it, didn't do it. You know, I drank for pleasure to to make me happy. Well, alcohol overstimulates the pleasure center of your your brain. You say, oh, that's great. Makes me feel even better. Yay. But the problem is that your brain, in order to maintain homeostasis, actually releases counter chemicals, one of which is called dynorphin, just kind of the opposite of endorphins is how I like to think of it, to reduce the level of pleasure in your brain because your brain can't function at that high level. Alcohol, because it's a toxin, your body will purge it relatively quickly within two to three hours. But that dynorphin is not toxic. It's created by your body and it stays. So if you're drinking every day, you actually create these ever present levels of this counter chemical that reduces your brain's ability to feel pleasure. Now it doesn't just reduce your brain's ability to feel pleasure from alcohol. It reduces your brain's ability to feel pleasure from a good book or connecting with your spouse or a walk outside or, you know, a nice dinner, all of the things that bring us pleasure, you can't feel it as well. And then we get confused. We say, oh, but I can't even enjoy this barbecue without a beer. No, no, no. (laughs) It's because you've been drinking all the previous beers that you're now feeling that way. And when I started to see this again, through these lens of curiosity, rather than blame or self-blame, I couldn't, I couldn't in good conscious, actually drink anymore. It wasn't like I ever even made this like, okay, day one, I'm going to white knuckle it and stick through it. It was, it was Mm -hmm. literally like, why, why would I do that? And so that was really the transition for me.
1: I feel like you must be used to stunned silences. (laughs) Yeah, no, no kidding. This was my experience. Diving into the naked mind was a kind of what? And it takes me right back to the shame piece at the beginning of our conversation going, oh dear, when someone kindly begins to unpack what I think is helping and is not, my response is shame. Maybe even not on the deep level of identity shame, just a kind of embarrassment of, wait, but I do... Most celebrations, if there isn't alcohol, think this would be more special if someone would open a bottle. This is what we're missing to kind of crown this, whatever it is. And so, going back, I want to ask what are the things that help you and have helped others? As you know, thousands of people have uh, participated in this conversation with you. What helps keep shame at bay? Uh, when you're having a conversation that actually radically reverses the story that many of us are living?
2: So I think it's twofold. Um, first of all, it's actually understanding like the mechanics of it, you know, and I go deep into this in, in the book of your brain is doing exactly what it's supposed to do when it likes alcohol a little too much, or when you're thinking, man, that bottle of something would be the crown of this event. Like it, it literally is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It is avoiding pain and seeking pleasure and trying to keep you alive. It's just been confused because the thing in alcohol overstimulates all the parts of your brain that are the survival mechanisms. So for an example, if you were a caveman and you were out in the woods and you were finding raspberries, and your brain saw the raspberries, ate the raspberries, you would have a huge dopamine response. it be like, this is great. Raspberries, woohoo. Or if you shot a bison and it's target practice and you hit it, this is great. you know. And so you have this response in the brain and the brain says, do that thing again. That thing you just did, do that thing again. Now, first person shooter video games, dopamine response, dopamine response, dopamine response, dopamine response. And then we get really addicted to things like Fortnite. And we're like, where did this, we blame ourselves. No, the Brain is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. You know, alcohol overstimulates the dopamine response. High fructose corn syrup overstimulates the dopamine response. Facebook and Instagram, they're so addictive because they overstimulate the dopamine response. And so we sit here and we blame ourselves when really the brain is just doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And when you can start to understand that, then you can start to have compassion. And we are human. So we can say, hey, that. Perceived, good feeling, that's a trap. Let me give you a tool. I want you, next time you're on Instagram, immediately when you're off, write down exactly how you feel. And then look at it objectively. You're like, oh, oh, I don't feel better, right? (laughs) I have people, have a drink, 30 minutes later, write down exactly how you feel. Mm. Oh, oh yeah, no, this isn't good. And then it's like, we can start to see and use this beautiful brain we've been given to actually see past this trap, which honestly, if you think about it, um, every single thing that overstimulates our dopamine response has a profit attached to it. And, and so there's a lot of money made in this idea of getting us hooked on whatever that thing is.
0: Yep. Yep. I just wanted to keep preaching that because that's something we almost made our subtitle for our podcast, Wake Up Sheeple, a while ago. Before it just feels too <laughs> derogatory and too ah, yeah we're the sheep too we're the sheep too so it's <laughs> um you you have talked about this before in like ways that are helpful to get some distance and break those cycles um I think we had a, a planned on having this conversation months ago we weren't in the middle of a global quarantine and we had actually just come off of a as a couple of us on staff do a January off from alcohol. So there's these, there are some cultural um, taking a step back, but that whole month of January then becomes still kind of fixated around alcohol, even though it's no longer in the picture. We're still thinking about like, Hey, come February 1st, I finally get to have that thing again. And I'm gauging the whole month long for like some significant weight loss, better sleep, feeling happier, all those sorts of metrics to make it worth it. And when it doesn't always play out that way, that can be really disappointing. So through that lens of making something a forbidden fruit, not very helpful.
2: <laughs> well, here's here's the truth of it. Um, and this is just the reality, is that the predicator for us keeping a habit over the long term is the emotion we associate with that habit. And so we go into a dry January, we go into it with a, okay, how's it going to be? Am I going to feel so much better? And if those things don't happen, then we're associating disappointment with the habit. Or we go into it and we're like, oh, I can't wait for this to be over. I'm just trying to prove to myself I don't have a problem. And then we go into it and we're associating deprivation with the habit. But if we can change our mindset and actually associate pleasure and good feelings with whatever habit change we're trying to do. And this is true of like, you know, you want to ride your bike or you want to like marathon runners. They literally love running marathons. They have associated so much positive emotion with that habit that it's easy for them to get up and run 13 miles at five in the morning. Where for me, that would be like not fun. Um, And so anything is like that. The people who consistently do the things, they have associated positive emotion with it. Now, the reason that I've been so successful in in what I do and why the people who have gone through this naked mind process have been so successful is because the entire idea is to draw towards pleasure and away from pain, to associate positive emotions, you know, by going through something and really realizing, oh, interesting. And I think you do that through curiosity, not having predetermined outcomes either way, because the reality is that we weren't created to be drunk all the time. We weren't created to drink every day. We weren't created to, you know, it wasn't like, here's your baby bottle and here's here's the vodka. Like it, it that just wasn't alcohol is part of it. Our experience, obviously it's been here since the beginning of time. But just like anything else, it wasn't created to be used how we use it today. It's just way over over the top. And so when you take the human without the preconceived judgment and you say, how is this going to be for you? So you go to the your happy hour and you're like, this might suck. It might be great. I don't know, but I'm just going to go and I'm going to have a nice tea. I'm going to imagine that it could be okay. I don't know, but I'm going to go with curiosity. And you walk out of there and you're like, wow, I just focused on talking to other people. I feel good. I can drive home. I'm not going to have a hangover. Boom, positive emotion. And the more you do that, but that has to be through curiosity. Because again, if you're expecting stuff that isn't being delivered, you're just associating disappointment. Or if you are just pining for it. And not going in with the curiosity because you're like, there's no way. If you tell yourself, this isn't going to be fun because I'm not drinking, which I had that experience. I was pregnant twice while I was drinking. And both times, nine months, every time I went to a social gathering, well, this isn't going to be as much fun because I'm not drinking. Every time it wasn't as much fun. And alternatively, now I go to things and I'm like, okay, how's this going to be? You know, I might be having a bad day. This might, I might not enjoy this at all, but it's going to be my authentic emotion. And over and over, I find myself like laughing louder than anybody because I don't have all the baggage that, that alternate person up here saying, what are you doing? It doesn't exist. There's no other person judging me. There's no inner shame. There's no inner blame. And so my experience becomes so pure and authentic and really, truly joyful. But you have to allow that it might not be. You have to get rid of the expectation and move into a place of curiosity.
1: It's such a dramatic reframe. Yeah, it's so good. But it's interesting because it's a familiar conversation where we will regularly talk to young guys and go, you realize... God wants your life to be wonderful and cares deeply about your humanity. And the way into that might surprise you and require unpacking the stories uh, that you've been told. Nonetheless, even saying that, we can have blind spots. And it was so interesting to go, oh, alcohol is a story and it's a story that we are saturated with. I was curious if, you know, as you started to read and research, where did the story come from that alcohol is fun, uh, pleasure producing, connection promoting? Because I think that if we were to randomly pull a large segment of our audience, we would all kind of go, oh, yeah, socializing plus alcohol equals better. So,
2: I do not claim to have the answer to that, but I can give you one specific antidote that you can do with it what you will. So, a, a few years ago, probably about a decade ago, the alcohol industry, and I was in advertising, so I knew this. I was on the inner uh, sort of industry. Um, they have all sorts of different publications about, you know, how to collectively try to market things better, Right. And the alcohol industry as a whole had published a bunch of articles about how one segment of their market was underserved. And uh, by that, they meant not buying as much booze as other segments of the market. And the segment of the market was women. And in the last 10 years, women's alcohol consumption has skyrocketed at 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 a pace that's much higher than men. Men still drink more overall, but women's has just like skyrocketed. Also, what's happened is there's all these placards and memes showing up, you know, you go over to my friend's house She has something on her wall. that says no good story ever started with a salad She has another thing that says it's not drinking at home or alone if the kids are home She has another thing that says it's not a hangover. It's the wine flu. Now. Did did women invent those things? Oh my I don't gosh. Like that's crazy, right? But that's the thing: is that the ability to infiltrate our consciousness through marketing is astronomical. There's a book by Ryan Holiday; it's called "Trust Me, I'm Lying," and he was a marketer for American Apparel for many years. and And it is, I mean, and I know this because I was in advertising. The alcohol industry has psychiatrists, human behavior specialists, psychologists, therapists on their advertising teams. So is it all from advertising? No, certainly not. Because guess what happens? You give somebody a drink. The brain says, ooh, that thing, do that again. And all of a sudden you've created this addiction. Um, And and it's maybe a mild emotional addiction or maybe it's a full-blown alcohol addiction. But the spectrum varies. And, And just by the way, the people with actual full-blown chemical addictions to alcohol are only 10% of excessive drinkers. So it's actually a very small percentage. Yet the majority of people are drinking on a regular basis and have this story that, yeah, it's good for us to relieve stress. Do you think it's an accident that every TV show has cops, you know, de-stressing at the bar with a whatever, the branded beer placement was for the moment. I mean, it's, it's just not right. (laughs) And so it is very strategic, but it isn't only that it also, then our experience confirms that we have that experience of that 20 minutes of euphoria. We don't connect the next 30 to 40 minutes to two hours of dysphoria with the drink because our brains don't work that way. And you have this, this mess. So I don't know all the answers, but I can, I can tell you what I know from my, my lens and my
1: view, which is from
2: the advertising industry.
1: It's hard to imagine a TV show where it cuts to the cop and he's gardening in his backyard to take advantage of the stress-relieving <laughs> elements of soil, <laughs> bacteria, Weeding a little bit. And you would look at Clearing that person and go, mind. "What a man!" Gosh, uh, yeah. It's so timely because even if our conversation comes out <laughs> weeks from now people will be carrying fear in their body and carrying the story that alcohol promotes stress relief. And if it didn't, that would be important to know. So I want to dive in a bit into, you know, you have these two pillar books. You have your exploration of alcohol's effect on physiology, more or less, and the naked mind. And then you have... Uh, a, a mindful drinking practice in the alcohol experiment. Could you take us into what is the alcohol experiment? How's it work?
2: Yeah. So the alcohol experiment, I mean, the truth is, and the reality is that while I now haven't really had a I haven't had a drink in probably over five years now. Um, my intention was not to become sober or to enter recovery or to identify as an alcoholic or any of those things. My intention was to make alcohol small and irrelevant in my life, to make it a take it or leave it thing, like I used to. Now, through what I discovered, I came to a point where I was like, oh, I don't know why I'd do that again. But I don't think I'm not able to. I feel like I would certainly be able to go have a drink and then not drink anymore. Um I don't, I don't see the point, but most people don't actually need a hundred percent sober solution. And that's where I think things really fall down in this conversation because there's nothing else on the planet that we are measuring where hundred percent is success and 99.9 percent is abject. Take your pin. You're an awful human, shameful failure,
0: mm. nothing
2: else. And so the alcohol experiment is really trying to reframe that, like, look, let's let's make an improvement. Let's find a place where you're happy. Let me help you with the tools to discover inside your heart what means right to you. And some people go on to just keep drinking with a new level of mindfulness and knowledge. Some people actually naturally reduce their intake. Some people end up just drinking on, you know, maybe the odd wedding or something, but they don't make it part of their daily life. My cousin, she, um, for a few years after doing it, she... It was just like, no, you know, I'm not gonna have alcohol in my house anymore and then a year after that, she's like, no, I haven't even had a drink in like six months and then now it's been two years for her but for her it was so natural because she wasn't, the hugest barrier to entry into this conversation is the idea that we all have to become sober <laughs> because look around you, how much fun does it look to become sober? <laughs>
1: doesn't look fun. Not very fun, awkward silence.
2: (laughs) So like why do we have that as the entry point? It's like trying to walk up a staircase where this stair is two stories high. Like we need to lower that barrier to entry. Because the truth is, again, not everybody needs to get sober. You know, not everybody needs to stop drinking forever. And so the alcohol experiment is intended to say, okay, look, you probably know more about the warnings on a bottle of Advil than you do on that bottle of wine. Let's get you educated in a really easy way, no scare tactics, and then make a decision that you know you're making with your whole heart and your whole mind. Because also what that does is it gets rid of this duality and this conflict inside you of both having to, I want to drink more and I don't want to drink because you've made a peaceful whole decision about where your drinking is and where it serves you. And you have the guardrails and the little red flags to say, whoa, 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 we're getting out of calibration. Let's do a reset. Because all of that is kind of included in the book.
1: And what it is, is it, if I'm right, is 30 days of abstention? Why does it start there? And why 30 days? Yeah, it's such a good question. So.
2: 30 days, because it's like dip a toe, get curious, see how your body will feel. Here's the thing, is that when we're talking about that chemical dynorphin that's ever present in the body, you need to be able to break that a little bit. You need to be able to experience life actually without that itch that you wanna drink. The thing that alcohol and anything that's addictive does is it creates a small amount of withdrawal. And withdrawal is this big, scary word, but I'm not talking withdrawal like you're gonna go into the hospital. I'm talking just about that itch you know, this is to be true. If you are going to eat tons of sugar and then you're just one day, you're not going to eat any sugar all day. You're going to be like, huh, where's my M&Ms? Like, it's just one of those things where you create a little bit of an itch for the thing as soon as you stop it. And that itch actually disguises itself as pleasure when you have the thing in question. So if you had an itch and you scratch it, It feels really good. But if you scratch somewhere you don't have an itch, it doesn't actually feel good. It probably even hurts a little bit because it's not something that's serving you. And you have to get that itch gone so that when you scratch again, when you have that next drink, you're having it from this very mindful place of, okay, apart from the physical chemical little dependence that we all have, you have one drink and you've awakened a little bit of a physical dependence. And apart from that, how does this really feel on my body? How does this really feel in my mind? Is this really a good thing? And I actually do that. I detail it out in the book on day 28. I like went about four months after I stopped drinking and I was like, I just am curious. All my friends are like, no, this is the best thing. Why don't you come back and join the party? What are you doing? So I was like, all right, I'm just curious. I just need to know. And I sat myself down with my iPhone camera and a bottle of wine and I proceeded to get drunk in front of the camera. And when the itch wasn't there, when the desire to drink wasn't there, the getting drunk, even in the beginning stages, like it didn't feel very good. It felt a lot more like, and I remember this, although I had totally forgotten it. I remember being, I don't know, 15 or something and having the first few drinks and being like, why do they do this? I just feel dizzy. Like, what's Mm. the, like, why? But then you assume since they're doing it, it must be good. I just have to power through. I just have to create a, create a, um, what is the word? Like a tolerance for it. I have to acquire the taste. Right. And so you power through it. And so I had this moment and that for me was like the last, like, it was like, Why would I ever do this again? Because I sat there with this very, like, how does this actually feel? And I couldn't tell you, like, I couldn't tell you why I would ever do it. I mean, I haven't, (laughs) because I was like, it doesn't feel that good when you get rid of that. So that's why the 30 days is important, because it takes about your body purges the alcohol relatively quickly. Even if you're drinking every day, it's like between. 48 and 72 hours. But then your brain has to rebalance because your brain's been on this autopilot of okay, every night we have to release these stimulants because we know this huge dose of depressant is coming in. We have to balance ourselves out. And then your brain has to be like, oh, it's not coming. Oh, it's not coming again. Oh, okay. And then your biochemistry can, can balance out. That takes about two weeks. Your sleep has to balance out. That also takes about two weeks. And then you have two weeks of like, okay, I'm not dealing with all that stuff. How does life feel? And two weeks is a great amount of time to just have, you know, a full cycle of like, you know, you've got your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner and your weekends and all that sorts of stuff. So then you can go back to it saying, okay, what do I want to do from here?
0: Okay. It's so good. And there's my mind is just is turning very quickly and trying to think through the implications, my personal experience with doing a a January that was dry this, this year. Um, I'm aware that part of this journey, we we actually look for blame, like that shaming piece we were blaming ourselves, the industry piece, which is very real, but it can be a source of blaming, getting this off of us. A huge category, a huge dynamic you've already talked about is that social component. And I'm wondering, like right now, we are not able to be very social, but actually our family may be, sphere where a lot of that influences. You mentioned drinking with your husband. I certainly drink with my wife. There's just, we're not free from the social environment, even if we are all isolated in our homes. So as someone does, whether it's a month or they're two weeks in, or they're two years in, how do you coach people to navigate this social dynamic? It feels like what I've seen and all of the YouTubers who do a dry whatever, it's like, oh, I'm going to get a seltzer with some lime. I'm just going to kind of try to be covert because I still got to go out. But if I'm not going to be doing this thing, I'm going to be a target, which is something I definitely experienced and experienced when I was a vegetarian for several years. People trying to like sneak you things. You're like, okay, why are you all against me? How do I navigate this? Well, I may not feel totally settled in it yet. And if I'm just experimenting and trying to be mindful... I feel vulnerable at the same time.
2: Yeah, totally. It's such a good question. And it is. I talk about really the three levels of, of why why we drink. And one is substance. So one is like what it does, what it says it does on the tin, right? It's going to relax us. And if it doesn't, and we see that, then it's really easy to put that away. And so my work, at least, especially the snake in mind is really all about like, let's, let's knock down all those beliefs, all the beliefs about what the substance does in my body, good or bad, once you realize that, that all is not really true. It's really easy. But then there's the deeper level, which is the social level. And the social level is really hard because that sounds like, well, I'm not going to fit in. I'm not going to connect with my wife. I'm not going to, you know, they're not going to invite me out anymore. I'm going to be an outcast. I'm going to be ostracized. And, and so we'll dig into that. But just to say that the third level of why people really drink, and I think this is the level where. You know, work needs to be done kind of outside of a book, and that's the level of self. And that really sounds like, oh, I'm not going to be able to be strong enough to get through my day without a glass of wine. You know, I can't parent my kids unless I pour two shots of vodka. And and that's these beliefs that I'm inadequate or I'm not worthy enough, you know, and that's a whole other conversation, but that's really, if you, if you, a lot of people, are just drinking for the substance. They're kind of rebels in their own nature, the the social whatever. I'm fine with being the, you know, I was a vegan before, I'm fine with being this. But if you have those self reasons, if you're drinking to really patch holes in yourself, you know, it's a whole different conversation. Um, Just to give that framework. But the social one, I think I've done all the things, like I've definitely gone the incognito route of ordering a vodka tonic and then going to the waitress and be like, hold the vodka, that one, all the rest that I order. And then, you know, laughing, having a great time, people actually making jokes about how I better slow down, uh, even though I was perfectly sober. And part of that in my early days was great because I was proving to myself that I was fun and nobody else had to know or not know. And so that was great. Like that, that really served me in the early days. I also went through a period of like, wow, I need to tell everybody about this. I need to get on my like soapbox and like talk to people and and wake everybody else up to this. And, and that did not serve me (laughs) because people definitely don't want you around when you're doing that. It made me feel better, but it wasn't, it wasn't a conversation or dynamic. I mean, people do not take advice. They're not asked for, and you're not in a position of influence and really true influence unless somebody's seeking advice from you. And so actually the third way, which I did, which I made the conversation as irrelevant as possible, however big or small you make it, if you're like, oh, I'm not drinking right now, and you want to invite that like arm twisting pity, your friends will be happy to oblige. Oh come on, you can have just one. But I'm like, no, I just feel better without it these days. Thanks. Do you have any iced tea? And I always try to say yes instead of no. So if somebody says do you want to drink, yes, do you have some water? I'm so dehydrated. How's your family? And like, just really say yes instead of no. We don't like saying no anyways as humans. And so if we can say yes, yes, I'd love a Diet Coke. Do you? I need some caffeine or whatever the case is, that's helpful. But in terms of the actual emotional internal feeling of like, am I connected here? Am I an outcast? Is this harming my relationship? I think that's where we need to, again, go with like a lot of curiosity to let the experience be what the experience is. And then make those judgments. Because as soon as you go into something, you're like, okay, I'm going to see how it goes. First of all, maybe means yes in this instance. So if you're going, whether you know, we get through this and you're going out to um, a concert and you're like, oh, I'm going to try not to drink tonight. Maybe, but I'm going to try not to. That means yes, 99.9% of the time. But if you go and say, I'm going to do a little experiment in my own life. And I'm going to say, how fun is this or not fun? If I just don't drink. And so you make this full commitment to yourself. You tell whoever you're with, hey, I'm going to buy you drinks all night long. I'm just not drinking. I'm just going to see how it is. Totally take the pressure off and then see how it is, because you can stand strong in your social um, norms and you can make other people feel really good about their choices. Like forever. My husband actually ended up stopping drinking a few years after I did on his own, like reasons or whatever. But when he was still drinking, I'd be the first one to be like, Hey, what do you want to drink? I'll go, I'll go buy you a beer or my team at work. I'd be like, I'd order all the wine and everything for the table since I was the boss. Because if I would order iced tea, everybody'd be like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. And they'd all order a Coke and everybody would be kind of meh. So I would make a big habit to order everybody drinks. And then just ask the waitress very quietly for whatever I wanted to drink or just sip my water or whatever the case was. But in order to get there to where you're actually caring more about making the other people feel comfortable, you have to get really secure in your own experience and knowing that your own experience is really good. And that happens through curiosity. And then when that happens, the most beautiful thing happens because if you've made everybody else feel comfortable, nobody else feel judged if you're not using any weapons of shame or blame towards them, and you are demonstrating having a really good time not drinking. Wow. All of a sudden people start to ask you, what's up? What are you doing? How's it going? I'm so curious. So you really haven't drank in a while. And then that's where you do actually have influence is really beautiful.
0: Mm, That's super good.
1: I can see that that there are inflection points that take a person into this, whether in their lives or inflection points of curiosity, because going oh, it's actually not an issue of alcohol, it's your deep fears of insufficiency of self is not an easy sell, but what are some of the tools that you recommend in beginning to acknowledge and explore that level?
2: So I think the first thing, and this is the hardest thing, is that that work is, I believe, guided by emotion. I believe that our emotions, our triggers, our anger, our fear is what guides us to the parts of ourselves that need healed, need attention, right? But if that emotion is turned off by drinking, it isn't present to be the map or the guidepost for us. And so if somebody wants to truly heal from that, I mean, really, you have to kind of be able to put down the drink long enough to feel an experience and let the emotion bubble up, right? If you think of Of cleaning out an attic. You know, you open the attic door and it's nasty in there and there's spiders and cobwebs and it's disgusting and you just want to close the door. But the only way you're going to clean it out is if you turn on the lights and you're present in the nasty and you're present in the cobwebs in order to actually bring up the, you know, bucket and the mop. And it's the same sort of thing. Like we, Need to have the courage to be present with our emotions in order to actually hear what they're trying to say or where they're trying to point us to. And so it is this chicken and the egg scenario, and it takes a lot of courage. And it's funny the thing about courage everybody says, Oh, courage, it's this like super, you know, sexy emotion. It's amazing, it's incredible. But courage, if you think about it, it doesn't feel good. Courage, by definition, is standing in fear. It's feeling fear and standing there and doing it anyway. And so I think that's like, if we reframe that and say, okay, we need to put down this belief that everything's going to be easy and everything's going to feel good and say, some of this isn't going to feel good and there's a purpose for that. And we're going to come out the other side better.
0: Mm. Yeah. This is, this is huge. Those the ways that we can use things to find the root as particularly emotions like, Oh my goodness. And in this particular season, I'm wondering if we can apply that same tool for folks that are listening. Going, well, I don't actually drink. You're going to go like, that, okay, this is this is also a part of a conversation about ways that we use to medicate, things that we use to try and avoid some of those uh, tears, or that's that self or social. Um, what are, what are some of the signposts that you use beyond uh, they can be emotional to work backwards towards some of those relationships with things for folks that are at home right now that may not be drinking or maybe drinking going, oh, okay. You know, when she was talking about the Instagram experience, I think I definitely have that as well. Like things, maybe you already mentioned it, but what are the things you were aware of to you work backwards from?
2: So I would sound like a, I will sound like a broken record here, but, um, really curiosity. So Instagram is a great example because Instagram is something that we pick up just for two seconds. We're just going to check one thing and it feels good for about maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute. And then it starts (laughs) to just not feel good, but we're in it. (laughs) And then 20 minutes go by, something distracts us out of it. We put it down. We look, I literally look at my screen time and I'm like, I was on Instagram for 53 minutes a day last week or an hour and 20 minutes a day like what is happening like that's a full-length movie And then so I said, okay, how do I feel and and for me journaling I think is a huge tool You can also do it voice memo. You can also do it selfie video, but like how do you feel? after because I promise you if you're anything like me and I have like I think of pretty healthy Instagram. I follow all these inspirational people. I have no negativity, all of this really positive stuff. But when I get off that, my emotional vibration, my feeling is low. And so just really being able to see that and expose that. And and the same can be true for. Netflix, the same can be true for the news. Right now, the news feels like, oh, we're doing a service. It's our job to be informed. It's our job to tune in. We need to know. But it's a lot like worrying about your kids, right? Like we feel like, okay, if we worry about your kids, we're doing something active. It feels active. It feels like we're trying to have a a say in whether something bad's gonna happen or not. But like worry doesn't do anything for us. It's actually in the Bible as something that like, don't do it. And our pastor the other week, he said, okay, what is the number one command in the Bible? The thing that's more than anything else in the Bible, what is it? And we're all like to love each other or whatever. Like everybody had a guess. He's like, no, the number one thing is do not fear. It's Mm. number one. It's said more times than anything else. And I mean, for me, just hearing that, oh, okay. And I actually felt relief in that moment oh, okay. And guess what? We do have a choice because if we put our focus on the news or on our media feeds or on, you know, whatever we're using to escape, we allow that fear to come in. But if we take control of our minds, if we stand vigilant and we say, no, I'm actually going to sit down and play a game of cards with my family. I'm actually going to intentionally do this. Is it more work in the moment? Yes. But do we reap humongous benefits because we're standing guard at the door of that fear that is just trying to come in and wipe us out and make us really like impotent, then I think we do ourselves a huge service.
1: Wow. So significant in this hour. A question that I know you get a lot is, are you really happier
0: now that you're not drinking? Yeah, like are you trying to take all my fun things away? Are you actually happier?
2: Um. So a few things like, I'll answer this in a few different ways because it's such a good question. First of all, little things, like do you remember being eight or ten years old and you'd have a friend over and you'd sit and something would strike you as funny and like you literally couldn't stop laughing until your gut hurt and you were like trying hard not to breathe or you'd spray water out your nose? For me as an adult, that didn't happen very much. I definitely had the drunken tipsy thing where the next day we were trying to remember what was so funny and nobody really could and we are all laughing, but it was like kind of not really present because I couldn't really remember it like must have been fun I can't remember it well wait that's not fun I want to remember stuff but that that giggly that like seriously going to pee my pants like that has come back and I it took a few years to be really honest with you because I had to get really comfortable just being and showing up as myself and I had some self work to do I had some work of places where I wasn't just drinking for a substance in society. I was drinking, you know, because I didn't think I was a good enough mom or because I didn't think I was showing up right in the world and, and I didn't feel worthy enough and all these other reasons. But once I did that, once I leaned into that, once I cleaned out that attic, like that attic is the really fun place. Like, and so I, those things that happen now they just hadn't happened in years. And I'm just like deliriously excited and surprised by that. And then very scientifically, I was on um, four antidepressants and I was on antidepressants for 17 years. And I was taking four different medications when I stopped drinking. And about a year after I stopped drinking, it's like, you know what? I think I feel good enough to, to start to talk to my doctor about weaning off these. And in the next year, I stopped taking all of them. So I don't take any medication anymore at all. None. And for me, that's Huge. And and do I still have anxiety? Yes, but it is manageable because I have the tools because I understand it. I remember a time in my life where when I was drinking, I wouldn't want a moment of silence. Like I would want a book on tape when I was in the car or a podcast. I would want something immediately, as soon as I got on a plane, I'd want to be turning on a show. I'd want my book to be reading before I fell asleep at night because I didn't want to be in my own mind with myself. And now like my own mind with myself is that attic and it's cozy up there. I lit a fire and I, I put some rugs and some armchairs down and hung some pictures and I invited my friends and like, it's great to feel totally whole and at peace with yourself. So happier, yes, but also more significantly, like much more joyful. And I think that's the bigger win.
0: Mm, that's so good. I just as an observation the the words curiosity and courage came up as much in this conversation as they do with my therapist friends. And I don't think that's unintentional. I think there's, there's a, there's something of ourselves that we need to be, be bringing to the table when we're going to go into these categories. So Annie, thank you. Where should people go to find out more about your work? If they're curious, they want to do this themselves, where should our listeners go?
2: So the Alcohol Experiment, it's a book, but it's also a free online program. So it's um, 30 days of videos and emails and all sorts of good stuff. There's a community of 120,000 people in there, and it's at alcoholexperiment.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a Intriguing conversation that I'm a little bit disturbed by That's in terms of the word self intriguing. evaluation. Exactly. <laughs> but ultimately, very intrigued because I'm very motivated by joy. And mm-hmm. there being an invitation maybe to deeper joy is curiosity inducing for me. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Annie. Yeah. Thanks, you guys.
2: It was a pleasure.